Um, uh, we're going to put up a QR code, which is what that thing is called. And I am testing out an interactive worship guide that'll have the sermon notes and fill in the blank outline. And if you will scan this with the camera on your phone, uh, it will pop up with a link. It'll take you to a link where you can see that. Um, it'll have uh, the scripture will be linked in there. There's a separate part where you can just type in freeform notes as well, but there'll be an outline uh, with fill in the blanks on it. Now, when you get, to, when you get finished and you get to the bottom, uh, there's a place where you can actually f- type in your email address and it will send you a completed copy of your notes of the, in PDF form. It'll just send you a PDF. The other thing you can do is you can straight download it straight to your phone if you want, or you can have it emailed to you. And then you'll have a copy of your own personal notes that you can keep, and it'll have your, your outline that you filled in. Now, if you get so enthralled with the sermon or fall asleep and you miss one of the blanks, there is an option in there to say, show it without the blanks, and it'll just have all the notes filled in for you. So uh, anyway, testing this out, uh, want to see if it works because, we, you know, since COVID, we went away from paper bulletins. And, wanted, and I know a lot of people, I, I sit up here and I see a lot of you with your phones out during service, which I assume you're taking notes and reading scripture, uh, not looking at Facebook, but who knows, right? And uh, anyway, I thought this might be a great option for some of you. So anyway, uh, if you can't get it to scan for some reason, there is a link on our Facebook. So, yes, your pastor's telling you it's okay to open up Facebook at church. Uh, there is a link on our Facebook group, uh, Facebook page. If you go to the Hope, Hope uh, Bible Fellowship Facebook page, there's a link there. If you're watching online, there's a link, to, direct link to it there as well. And you can, uh, you can just get to that that way. Hey, I want to tell you a little bit of a story to start out with. Uh, one day there's this old farmer and his wife, and they go to the state fair. Now, every year, they had gone to the state fair as long as they could remember since they'd been married. In fact, even when they were single, they had gone uh, to the fair with their uh, respective families. Now, one year, they're over near the hog pavilion, and you guys know what the hog pavilion smells like, right? As soon as I said that, if you've smelled it before, immediately you can smell it in your memory, right? Anyway, so they're over near the hog pavilion, and the old farmer looks up, and he sees a ride, or excuse me, a sign that says, helicopter rides, $50. And he looks at his wife, and he says, well, what do you think? And she says, shook her head, she said, $50 is $50. So the old farmer's disappointed, and they go on and do the rest of the fair, and they leave. The next year, they come back, and this time, closer to the outskirts of the grounds, they see a sign that says, helicopter rides, $50, and you can see the helicopter pad with the helicopter sitting on it right there. And he looks at his wife with that, you know, guys, you know that look. When you look at your wife, you don't even have to ask, but she knows you're asking. And she shakes her head and says, $50 is $50. So he's bummed and they go home. Now, year after year after year, this happens. For five, six years, they come, they see the helicopter, they see the helicopter ride sign, $50, and he looks at his wife. Sometimes he actually verbalizes it and says, can we do it this year? And she says, no, $50 is $50. Well, one year, they were close enough that the pilot could overhear what was going on. And he said, sir, he said, I see you guys year after year. Apparently the pilot had been there year after year too. I see you year after year coming by and you always talk about maybe taking the ride. And she always says, no, 
I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take you both up on a helicopter ride, and if you don't make a sound the entire time, then it'll be free. But if you make any sound, it'll be $50, the cost of the ride. So he looks, the old farmer looks at his wife, and he's very excited. And he looks at his wife, and she says, well, $50 is $50. So they get in a helicopter, and they go up, and man, they are cruising. And this pilot wants to give him the ride of his life, because he knows he's seen him for year after year, not being able to do it. And he, he, so he's going all around the fairgrounds and out in the countryside, and he's going into sharp climbs and deep dives, and he's doing banking as much as you can in a helicopter, and like doing all this stuff that you might even think is dangerous, Right. And the old farmer has the look of just excitement, exhilaration, but he doesn't say a word the entire time. They get back to the fair and they land. And uh, the pilot looks over at the old farmer and says, wow, I can't believe you stayed quiet. I did everything I knew how to do in a helicopter to get you to make some kind of sound. And neither of you made a sound of any kind. And he looks back to to speak also to the farmer's wife and she's gone. And he said, looks at the farmer, he says, where'd she go? And he says, oh, she fell out 15 minutes ago. <laughs> and the pilot looked at him and said, well, why didn't you say anything? And the old man said, $50 is $50. <laughs> Obviously, it's an extreme joke, right? But the connection here is that many people in this world will look to their finances and hold tightly to it as a source of joy. The world will look to sex or money or power, career, entertainment, any of that as a source of their happiness, and they will look to it for their joy. This is even built into our country and the American dream. We're, we're chasing happiness. You guys have heard it, right? I mean, we all say it at school, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. People live their lives chasing these things. You know, King Solomon in the Old Testament, he spent his entire life indulging in the pursuit of joy. He had everything you could want in life. He tried it all. And at the end, he said it was all vanity. Solomon found, and many more have since, that none of these things satisfy. See, the the, the functional gods that we make out of our career and our health And money and other things can disappear in the blink of an eye. And when they do, we're left despondent. There's many stories of people who've lost a career, they lost their job, they lost a relationship, and they were so distraught and saw no hope because they had lost the source of their joy that they even committed suicide. And it's tragic. But here, in the book of Philippians... In chapter 1, we we find one of the most joyous people in all of the Bible, and he's writing this letter while sitting in prison. And he still finds joy. Well, that that has got to make us ask, what is his secret? What caused Paul, the apostle, to have so much joy amidst sitting in prison? That's what I want to look today as we study chapter 1, verses 8 excuse me, three through eight, of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, who he was very close to. Let's read from the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine, for you all, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask God to help us. God, thank you for your word that reveals your son, that reveals the Lord Jesus Christ to us. God, as I, as I speak this morning, I pray that you would use uh, your word to open the hearts of your people, to open the hearts of those who may not know you. Uh, God, I pray you'd help us to um, take this word and apply it to our lives. Help us understand what it means. Help me be clear with all that. And then help us to turn it into something that, that, that we apply to our lives that, that changes the way we live, God, we know your word is relevant to every part of our lives. Help us trust you and take you at your word this morning. God, if there's anything it's just in me, clear that out. I, I just pray that you would speak clearly to your people through your word, that you would help me to uh, not in any way hinder that. God, this is about you. This is for you. It's not about me, God. Don't let me, don't let me make it about me. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <coughs> If you're following along in your notes, number one is joy comes from living life in the right order. See, these folks that I talked about in the introduction had gotten their life out of order. When I was in seventh grade, I started attending a youth summer camp with our church. You guys remember church camp, teenage youth camp? So it was, I looked forward to it every year, and it was called the University of Joy. Now that was spelled J capital J, period, capital O, period, capital Y, period, University of Joy. And I attended that camp from the time I was a uh, seventh grader until I had graduated from college, or excuse me, from high school. Um, then for, for four years when I was in youth ministry, I was the associational camp director for an association of Baptist churches, and I set up the youth camp and there was only one way I knew how to do camp, and that was University of Joy, and so I used that format to set it up. Now, the name, I'll admit, is a bit cheesy and on the simplistic side, but it came from the mission of the camp. The mission of the camp was to teach students that the proper order to live your life was Jesus, others, Yourself. You've probably all heard that. It's something we, we teach at VBS and, and to children, right? But that is so simplistic, but yet it's so incredibly true and important that we should live our lives first as our first concern, our relationship with Jesus and his glory. We're first obedient and worshipful of our Savior. The next, our concern should be for our neighbor, for the others around us, and lastly, for ourselves. And Paul was an excellent example of how to live the Christian life in the proper order. He was all about Jesus. 
He was concerned for others, namely the Christians who were making up the church at Philippi in this case. But he kept himself and his desires in the back seat to what best served Jesus and the church, to what was best for others. And Paul had learned that true joy is found in Christ and Christian community. True joy is found not in, not in money, not in career, not in self, but true joy is found in Christ and Christian community. Paul's prayer of thanksgiving here is really of note because he was not given to praying generic prayers. You don't find Paul given those generic prayers that we sometimes give, right? And God bless everybody. Forgive me for all of our sins. Help us have a good day. Amen. Like, that's not Paul, okay? That's just not what he does in these letters. He doesn't offer the exact same prayer for each group. But in his letters, we see specific requests for different groups of people, as well as specific prayers of thanksgiving for those specific people. Too often, we read through Paul's letters and we miss the relational side of it. We get so into figuring out how this applies to us that we miss that this is a man who is writing to a church that he deeply cares about. Not just collectively, but also as individuals. He deeply cares about these Christians who he's writing to. And he's writing to thank them and also exhort them to better service to the Lord Jesus. As Christians, we have a common bond. We have a common bond. We're a community of people who know we're sinners. We know there's nothing we could ever do to make up for our sin. There's there's no way out of our sin aside from Jesus. We know that we rightly and justly deserve the wrath of God for our sin. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So something has to die to pay for sin. Now, God's righteous wrath on sin is good and sin must be judged so we have this common bond we're we're all on the same playing field it's level right we come together knowing that i'm not perfect and you're not perfect because we're all sinners and 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 without christ we're all due rightfully and justly the wrath of god poured out on sin but what christians also understand and have a common bond in is that god loves us and so in order to fulfill the payment that sin requires He sent Jesus, his only begotten son, the son of God, God in the flesh, to be born of a virgin and live a sinless life. The sinless life, by the way, that we had no hope of being able to live on our own. He then gave that perfect life willingly on a criminal's cross as a substitute for you and me. He died in our place and took the punishment that he did not deserve in exchange for that gives us his right standing before God. He died for you and me. He was whipped for you. He was killed for you. And to show that God had accepted that payment in full, Jesus raised from the dead three days later. Now, we have this common bond. Christians know that our only joy comes from knowing that everything we have, we don't even deserve, but it is by grace. We have a fellowship of the saved, a blood-bought family. And we can gather together and rejoice in belonging to God. We have a common bond. And Paul would rejoice in that common bond of grace showed to them. 
that they had heard the gospel that he preached and believed it. And believed it. So Paul knew that there was joy in Christ, in the gospel, and in Christian community, having that common bond of sharing in being blood-bought sinners saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul also found joy in gospel partnership, and this we see played out in verse 5. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He talks about partnership in the gospel. This is a pretty huge theme in uh, what we're going to be talking about in Philippians for the next several weeks. Paul was grateful for the support that the Philippian church had given him and how they'd served as co-workers in the mission of the expansion of the kingdom from the beginning of the church in Philippi. From the very beginning, when Paul went to that basically women's prayer meeting, right? Lydia believed and then his, uh, her whole family uh, came to know Christ and were baptized. And it grew from there. Paul was joyful in his thanksgiving for their support and their service. There's a Greek word that appears here and appears throughout the letter of, of uh, Philippians. And that Greek word is koinonia, and you've probably heard it before. Koinonia is the word. Now, a lot of times we translate this word as fellowship. But I'm concerned that we've used that word, fellowship, so much in referring to potlucks that we've moved away from what the true meaning of koinonia is. It deals with a variety of relationships that typically involve mutual interests and sharing. D.A. Carson stated this, and I I thought this was good. He says, the heart of true fellowship is a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. The heart of true fellowship is a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Well, here in Philippians, we see this fellowship played out in their partnership with Paul in the gospel. So what does that gospel partnership look like? See, it has two segments that I want to kind of investigate with you. I want to go through what, what does gospel partnership look like? Well, number one, it looks like gospel partnering friendship. Gospel partnering friendship. The Philippians understood their friendship with each other, with Paul, it was established by Christ. They came together as people who may have had nothing in common except for Jesus. Look at Jesus' disciples. You got Simon the Zealot, you got Matthew's a tax collector, you got fishermen. And they wouldn't have had much in common other than Jesus. Their friendship, gospel partnering friendship, was established by Jesus. And they were bound together by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God that indwells every believer binds us together as family, as the family of God, as co-workers in the gospel. So here's the thing about Christian friendship versus, and I could preach a whole sermon on Christian friendship, but... um, That's not exactly the purpose of this today. Secular friendship is based on commonality, right? We live in the same place. We grew up together. We went to the same school. We were friends, right? Or we all like the same football team or video games or whatever. And and secular friendships are based on commonality. 
But gospel friendships, deep Christian friendships are deeper because they go past commonality and they have a mechanism for dealing with conflict. Sorry, they have a mechanism that works for dealing with conflict. That's really the difference in Christian relationships and secular relationships. Like, when you're a kid and you've just got friends that you just grew up around, um, somebody does something you don't like, and you don't have a mechanism for dealing with that conflict. But as believers in the church together, we have a disagreement, we have a mechanism for dealing with that conflict. Jesus gives us that mechanism for dealing with conflict between one another. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I was reading and studying on this, and I found uh, by one of the authors gave four barriers, four barriers to uh, deep, encouraging, loving, and edifying relationships. So these are like four things that, that sort of get in the way of us having those deep gospel friendships with one another. And I'm just going to, we're not going to spend a ton of time on them, but I want to go through those. The first one is sensationalism or, or people who are sensationalist. Um, they're not too excited. Like the, the Christian life is too mundane for them. It's too kind of mm, not sensational enough. And, and it's, they just aren't interested in participating because it's not exciting enough for them. Okay. The second one is, is mysticism. Those mystic folks. These folks want just their Jesus and me time to make up basically the Christian life. And they, it's just, hey, it's all about me and Jesus alone together. And I don't need anybody else. And the third is, is idealism. People who are idealistic. They live in what, what, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I don't know if you're familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his story. Um, but he was a German and opposed Hitler. And he wrote a bunch of really, uh, a bunch of really good stuff on uh, he, he wrote a book called Life Together on Christian Life, and he wrote uh, The Cost of Discipleship, some other books that are just classics in Christian literature, okay? Uh, anyway, Bonhoeffer uh, would call what these idealistics are after is the wish dream, the wish dream. And what that means is it's, they get in their mind the idea of what a perfect church would look like and what perfect Christian fellowship would look like and what perfection of people treating me perfect and all that. Like they, they've created this church that doesn't exist anywhere except in their mind and they chase after the wish dream and they've got no time for anybody who doesn't fit in with the wish dream. This happens to pastors all the time, constantly chasing the perfect church. Number four, individualism. Individualism. These folks tend to favor online community. We love you if you're watching online, but we would love to have you come and join us in person when you feel comfortable doing so. But these, these individualism folks, they have no desire to, uh, to be part of the community. They, the, online, the online situation in the last few years has actually aided in this, okay? Uh, the issue is that this, the virtual will never match the real. So, and we all got a taste of that, right, during COVID. We all, like, there was a span of time where we were all virtual, and it wasn't the same. And when we got, were able to gather back together in our churches, we recognized that this, yeah, there, there's something about this that I've been missing, gathering together in person and worshiping the Lord together. Now, if you're sick or injured or, you know, you're in danger of the virus or whatever, it's okay. Totally fine. Join us online. But I don't believe that we're meant to be solely virtual people. 
we have a need for real, in-person community. There's much different, there's much different experience in being on a Zoom call and talking with somebody and sitting over a cup of coffee with someone. We don't only need friendships, though. We don't only need pr- friendships. We need gospel partnering mission, and that's the second aspect of this I want to deal with. We we don't need just friendships, but we need people to partner with us in the gospel. We need co-laborers who are on mission with us. Uh, From Tony Merida, who has written, again, a great book on Philippians, he gives an example of um, the story of the Lord of the Rings, if the Fellowship of the Ring in particular, if you're familiar with that book or or the movies. But he, he says this, In his book, The Fellowship of the Ring, J.R.R. Tolkien writes a thrilling story to illustrate this idea of gospel partnership. The fellowship is made up of radical diversity. Little, resilient, pipe-smoking hobbits with big hairy feet from the Green Shire, a few warrior men, a wizard, an elf with amazing archery skills, and an out from under the mountain's dwarf with an axe. But together, they share a common mission of defeating the forces of darkness and saving Middle-earth. And they were willing to die for one another and for their mission, okay? They're trying to beat the big bad guy. And in order to do so, they're willing to give their lives for one another. And they're referred to as the Fellowship of the Ring. Now, I thought that was a really great example, not just because I love Lord of the Rings. I mean, some of you have been to my office and you know I've got a tapestry of Middle Earth on my wall, okay? Not just that, but... We recognize our differences and we cultivate relationships with those who are different from us, who are co-workers on the mission of gospel advancement. We cultivate relationships with people who are different than us because we have a common mission as believers. Let that set for a minute. So how do we cultivate those relationships? How do we grow gospel partnerships? How do we grow gospel partnerships? Number one, put the gospel first. Put the gospel first. J.D. Greer says gospel above all. Put the gospel first. Well, okay, pastor, that is a great slogan. How do we do that? Glad you asked. When you're together, talk about Jesus. I mean, the weather is great to talk about. It's fine to talk about the ball game yesterday. I talked with a lot of people about the ball games and things like that over the years, okay? Um, But talk about Jesus. That doesn't mean he's the only thing you talk about. But talk about Jesus when you're together. Make sure he's the center of it all. Make sure he's the center of your relationship. Here, here's how this looked with Paul and the Philippians, okay? Here's how this looked. It, three real ways, okay? Number one, there was financial aid and personal care, okay? They provided financially for his needs and took care of him personally, okay? They were supporting his work, not just with being co-laborers, but also financially. Number two, suffering with and encouraging one another, There's so much that Paul writes about suffering. But he says, uh, 
Beginning in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you, you in my heart for you all are partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So they partnered with him in suffering as well as in encouraging one another. Maybe encouraging one another while you're suffering together. And number three, by praying for one another. Look, I I get it, guys. I know it's really easy to say, hey, I'll pray for you. Or someone posts, hey, I'm having surgery tomorrow on Facebook. And you're like, yeah, praying for you, brother. And it's real easy to do that and then go on with your day and completely forget about it. And you're like, oh, that surgery was at 9. It's 1030. I didn't pray for him. So you're like, Jesus, be with his recovery. Right? I want to encourage you to stop and pray with people when you have the opportunity. My friend Jed, I've known Jed since we were uh, young children. We went to school together. Um, uh, We've had kind of a different relationship over the years. There was a time in elementary school when I got sent to the principal's office because Jed was going through the lunch line, and I decided that would be a good time to choke him out. And uh, so I started choking him for some reason. Don't know why. Um, I was made fun of a lot. I'm sure it had something to do with that at some point. But uh, I responded wrongly to that. I started choking him. I got sent to the principal's office. I think I got to eat lunch the rest of the year in the principal's office that year, probably. Um, But anyway, a few years later, I was Jed's best man in his wedding. So I guess he forgave me. Uh, Anyway, uh, Jed later on went on uh, to become a pastor and all that stuff. And I I just love he and his wife, Christy. Uh, But anyway, um, I remember one time I was walking around downtown Des Moines with Jed. He was working there at the time. And we're walking around, and we're in the Skywalk system, which uh, you guys are probably familiar with Skywalk systems. They go between buildings on, like, the second floor. And it's lunchtime, so everybody's going to the different lunch places. This was close to a big hub in Des Moines where a lot of people would go to get their, you know, I don't know, their $5 Chinese food for lunch during their break from Wells Fargo or wherever. And uh, he stops to, like, he wants to pray for me before I go. So we stop right there in the middle of the people, and he just prays for me right there. And I was a little uncomfortable just because I wasn't so much used to that, just stopping right where you were. It was like, I'll be praying for you tonight. I'll pray for you on my way home or whatever. He stopped right there and prayed for me in the middle of the scout. People are walking by. I'm like, I bet this looks weird to people. But then it was like, why do I care? Why do I care? Because our relationship is based on that common bond in Christ, and we're partnering together with one another. So I just want to encourage you, look, you don't have to stop in the middle of a crowd. Please don't stop in the middle of traffic and pray, okay? You pull, pull over. Um, but like when you see something or someone comes to your mind, pray right then. I have a guy I know named Sean, uh, I consider a friend, big Oklahoma State Cowboys fan. And uh, Iowa State beat the Oklahoma State Cowboys yesterday. Um, and so I text, but, I, but he's a pastor. I texted him this morning and said, hey, great game, could have gone either way praying for you as I get ready to preach, and you do too. Because he came to mind, and I wanted to, you know what, I'm going to pray for him. Instead of, well, maybe I rubbed it in a little. But uh, instead of that, I, I just wanted to pray for him. So he, here's the thing, but we have, we have a friendship that goes beyond, it goes beyond that. It's connected by Christ. It's not connected by sports. It's not connected by anything else. And so stop and pray for one another. Somebody, you're texting with somebody, they're talking about something, say, hey, praying for you right now. And you stop and pray for them right there. They don't even have to be with you or anything like that. 
I believe that it would be pretty nearly impossible to do all of these three things that Paul and the Philippians were doing for one another. I believe it would be pretty impossible to do them and cultivate that gospel partnership and not grow in your relationship with one another. I think it would be impossible to do these three things and not love that person more. I think it would be impossible. It's darn near impossible if you're praying for somebody to not love them. You will grow in your love for people as you're praying for them. That is how we grow in gospel partnership. Number four, the joy of God working in them really got to Paul. He loved seeing God work in the lives of the church at Philippi. In verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is the good work he began? The good work Jesus began is forming a people for himself. And friends, I promise you, I promise you, take this to the bank. God finishes what he starts God starts something, he will finish it. Paul's confident that the Philippian Christians will progress in faith because the Lord God is committed to transforming them. We can be sure that God will complete his work in us. If God begins the work in you, he will see it through to the conclusion that he has for you. God's work in the hearts of his followers is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. My friend Jim says, I'm invincible until God's done with me. And when God's done with me, I don't want to be around anymore anyway. So if I'm still here, God is not done yet. God's work in the hearts of his followers is unstoppable. Tony Merida again writes this, while many apply this verse to individual salvation, we should remember that Paul has been speaking of the koinonia, that is the work of God, to form a people for himself. It seems best to apply this text to both dimensions, the personal and the corporate aspects of God's saving grace. Both are gloriously true. That not only will God complete his work in you that he started he will complete his work in us corporately that he starts in building a people for himself in building a gospel-centered church he will complete the work he starts number five the joy in knowing a heart-stretching affection the joy in knowing a heart-stretching affection and this heart-stretching heart-enlarging affection For the Philippian church that Paul had, had really three aspects to it that he breaks down in verses 7 and 8. And those three aspects are this. The first one is, it was heartfelt affection. It was heartfelt affection. Paul tells them that he holds them in his heart. A scholar I saw quoted said that this text could also be translated because you hold me in your heart. Well, Surely both of those things are true. The point is that there was a deep heart relationship between the apostle and these people. He delighted in them. 
And this isn't some kind of cheap sentimentalism, okay? This isn't Valentine's Day, all right? This isn't some cheap sentimentalism. If we fast forward into chapter 2, Paul says that he's poured his life out for them. They're a model of Christian friendships centered on the gospel. There's a willingness to sacrifice oneself for another's benefit. There's a willingness to give of yourself for another's benefit, which sounds a lot like Jesus. No greater love could a man have that he laid down his life for his friends. Sounds a lot like Jesus when we are sacrificing of ourselves for those who we love. The second aspect to this was appropriate or right affection. When I heard appropriate affection, of course, I thought, what is, you know, does that mean there's inappropriate affection, right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about appropriate affection, meaning it is right or it is justified affection. Let me explain what I mean by this. Paul says it's right for him to feel this way. This type of love relationship is appropriate for those who share in a common faith and the common work in the Lord. They were partners with Paul, both in the gospel of grace and in his defense of the gospel, but also in his imprisonment and his suffering. Paul is speaking of being partners in grace, not just, not just of saving grace, but what he has in mind is their common and partnering struggle to make the gospel known through church planting and missions. The third aspect of this affection that Paul shared with them is this. Paul says he, excuse me, it's Christ's affection. Sorry, Christ's affection. The affection of Christ. Paul says he longs for them with the affection of Christ. Christ Jesus. Now as one who is united with Christ, Paul had resolved to share in this love that Jesus has for the people of this local church. It's good. It's right. And even Christ-like for us to express appreciation and affection for our partners in the gospel. It's good. It's right. And it's Christ-like for us to receive this affection as well. Some of us are good at giving the affection, but we're not so good at receiving it when it comes our way. Some of us, all we want to do is receive, you know, stroke my ego, please. And we're not so good at giving. But it is good. It is right, it is appropriate, and it is Christ-like to both give and receive this affection because this kind of affection leads to joy. Joy in a partnered friendship, a partnership in the gospel, a partnership in Christ. So, what do you do with that? Well, you start to serve together, number one. You, do, you start to love each other, pray for one another, support each other, and you serve together. My, uh, my friend Jim Reynolds, he's the first pastor I served under in what I would for when I started out in ministry, like 21 years ago, okay? And um, still to this day, he's one of my closest friends. And I uh, don't get to see him a lot. They, he lives down in Galesburg now, but uh, he said something that kind of has stuck with me is that our relationship was so close because we shared ministry together. 
And there is something about service to the Lord together, doing ministry together. Those of you who have been on mission trips with people, there's something that happens where uh, serving God together builds a tighter bond than really anything else. And it's true. So what do you do with all this? Well, I want to leave you with a very short call to action, something that I want... I want, you can put legs on it and, and do it in your own life. And uh, as I go through that, I'm going to actually invite the musicians to come up because um, we're kind of rounding the bend here. But here's the call to action. Here's what I, I want to challenge you in. Number one, you won't have these heart-stretching affections for people if you're not serving with them and working in partnership to enlarge the kingdom of God through the spread of the gospel. So my challenge is, Plug in to serving the Lord together with people. We just so happen to have a great opportunity next Sunday for that. Just saying. With the trunk or treat, trick or treat thing. Okay, our candy giveaway, whatever we're calling it. We're going to be out there and we're going to make kids happy and love on them with the love of Christ. All right? So, so that's an opportunity right away. But there's lots of other opportunities to serve and spread the gospel together as God's family. Number two. See the good work he started in you through to its completion. He will. So persevere in partnership in the gospel. Persevere in your faith, but persevere in your relationships with one another. Don't give up when it gets difficult. Don't give up when there's conflict with other believers. Forgive and work it out for God's glory. Friends, that's what sets us apart is we don't deal with things like the world. We deal with things like Jesus. And so in our relationships, whether it be in our families or our friendships or with church, deal with those things like those who have a common bond in Christ. Forgive and work those things out for God's glory. And number three is this. Keep the gospel, keep Jesus at the center of all your relationships with other believers. Hey, friend, you know what God was showing me in his word this week. Hey, you know what pastor said on Sunday? Uh, what do you, you know, how do you apply that into your life? How do you, how do you do that? Like, what does that mean? Hey, pastor was talking about this thing. Let's talk about it. Hey, uh, you may say, well, you know, how am I supposed to remember on Wednesday? Well, it's online now. <laughs> so you can go check it out. Or, you know, just as simple as, friend, how can I pray for you this week? Specifically, what can I pray for? Man, I've had friends talk to me about things going on in their lives. I've had friends say, you know, hey, I'm struggling with lust this week. Or, hey, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, my wife and I had a fight. And, I, you know, I really didn't treat her right. And I, you know, whatever, right? Those type of relationships... They happen differently in the context of a partnership in the gospel than they do out in the world. So I just want to challenge you to find joy in Christ and in true Christian community. Would you stand up with me this morning? We're going to sing in just a moment. I want to just challenge you to to spend some time worshiping God during this song. Spend some time praying, seeking God's face in these things. There may have been something in the message that kind of pricked your heart a little bit. Um, 
follow that out. God, what are you trying to show me? God, what are you trying to help me understand from your word? Like, what am I supposed to uh, do about this stuff? And then, obey. Obey the Lord's leading. And uh, I'll be around later. I'd love to talk with you. If you need to talk about something, you can always get a hold of me during the week. And I would love to continue to just build that Christian community. I'm not saying, you're not going to be best friends with everybody at the church. That's not going to happen, okay? Um, you can't all be, it just doesn't work. We, our, our capacity doesn't work out for that. But we can build a community together as individuals, but also corporately, where um, we're, again, partnering in the gospel and being truly gospel-centered uh, Jesus-saturated friends and community relationships and we'll have joy and that joy is infectious to those around us. I shouldn't say infectious. It's not the great time. <laughs> it's contagious. That doesn't work either. Joy spreads. That, it doesn't work. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. Yeah, maybe it does work. That's, maybe that's the thing. Yeah, yeah true that's true all right let's pray god thank you so much for this group of people who i love dearly they have my heart oh thank you god i i don't man i don't deserve it i you do so much in my life that i just i have all i can say is thank you god help me to just stand in awe of you sometimes and just be in awe of calling in my life, your placement of people in my life. Help me to not take that for granted, God, but to develop those deep gospel friendships and find joy in you, not in the things of the world, not in other people, not in, but just the joy that, that I have joy in you and, and I have forgiveness and salvation in you. And through you, I can even have those kind of relationships. Help us follow you trip over ourselves. Love you, Jesus. God, if you are working in the hearts of some of the people here, I pray that they would have a boldness to, to just drop their guard and surrender to whatever it is that you want from them. That they would follow you and your word. They would follow what you've said to them. And you help them obey amidst the culture that doesn't want us to. Trust you and take you at your word above all things, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.